This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. The purpose of my show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. I want to understand the work of tomorrow. Now, 10 years ago, we thought that car sharing was uh, hip. Then came Uber, then self-driving cars. And now we see the ventures that propose flying cars as a solution of our mobility problems. So public transportation and new mobility concepts have really emerged as one of the hottest industries in tech. At the same time, however, we get reminded that transporting passengers comes with enormous responsibility. Over 30,000 Americans lost their life in traffic accidents last year. And most recently, we saw the first traffic fatality caused by a self-driving car. So public transportation and the future of mobility is our topic for today. To help us understand this topic, I have two wonderful guests. Uh, Jeff Knappel is the general manager of the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority, also known as SEPTA. And in the second half of the show, I will talk to Florian Reuter, the CEO of Volocopter, the company behind Dubai's flying taxis. At this point, welcome, Jeff. Good morning. Actually, good afternoon. <laughs> Jeff, uh, what is your favorite riding experience on Scepter? Is there like a particular route that you like to take, a particular train uh, or trolley? Well, I, I, I do like my regional rail trip, probably because it's long. Uh, you know, the, the, you, some of the shorter trips in the city uh, end pretty fast. So I, I think uh, I really uh, enjoy watching uh, out the regional rail uh, as I come in from Lansdale. So Thorndale Paoli on the R5, these long rides. Yeah, you get more to see, and, and uh, you know, I, I just, I, I like that uh, longer trip. Uh, sometimes the, you know, the trips are, you know, they're so, they're so short uh, in the city that it, it's over quickly. So it can, you can really relax. And, and I think it's one of the reasons that people um, really enjoy taking our regional rail, because, and I don't think it's talked about as much. But it really is, you know, your time. You know, you can you can you can really relax. You can you know watch a movie on your iPad. Uh, you can you can talk to somebody on the phone unless you're in the quiet car. And uh, I, I do think that uh, a lot of our customers on the regional rail uh, really enjoy that ability to have some time to themselves. So you provided some 300 million rides last year. Can you give us a scale of the operations in terms of vehicles and stations and employees? I mean, how, how big of an operation is that? Well, we have uh, roughly 9,500 employees. Um, I have about 1,500 buses. Um, we uh, operate a lot of modes, um, the most modes uh, under one company in the uh, country, uh, us in Boston. Uh, what's interesting um, is really that we were a compilation of a lot of different companies uh, that, you know, obviously uh, had difficult uh, business situation and, and uh, eventually were uh, folded into SEPTA. So we have uh, heavy rail, we have light rail, we have commuter rail, we have paratransit. And I think what's really interesting about SEPTA is we're just that size of the city that's just able to make our system be really centrally managed as one company, uh, get too much bigger like Chicago or uh, uh, New York, and you kind of have independent companies that are, that are then, uh, you know, at the very top, you get a couple of people that, that try to bring everything together. But, you know, we're one centrally located company, so we're very well integrated between the trolley, between the bus, between the railroad. You know, we think of ourselves as one company, and I think that really helps uh, customers in their ability to move around. How do you know if you're doing a good job at moving people around? I mean, what, what metrics do you track? Is it well, more the ridership? Is it the yeah. paying customers? It, 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 you know, there's customer satisfaction surveys, and we watch them uh, pretty closely. I think, you know, obviously ridership is a, is a, you know, a big indicator. Although, you know, there's certain trends that are making it a little harder to tell. Uh, one of the things that I think people are not paying as much attention to is even the telecommuting. You know, the concept that people are, um, you know, staying home and working from home. So it's not just Uber and Lyft, you know, that, that uh, are, are pulling some, some riders away. There's also the potential that people are, are working from home more. So, you, you, you know, you have to watch your ridership uh, numbers. But, you, you know, you also have to 
um, there's a lot of ways that you can quantify how, uh, you know, how beneficial SEPTA is to the region. I can tell you right now that it, we can look at the building permits and they're going, you know, construction permits. And if you look at them over the last couple of years and you put a dot on the map for each one, you, you can then realize that they're centered around our system, that we are really, really driving a lot of economic development in the city uh, and the suburbs. And so, um, you know, there's, there's different ways. You know, there's the, the individual condu- uh, consumers, the, the, the riders, uh, but there's also the benefit that we're having overall to the region. And, uh, you know, the numbers are just amazing uh, in terms of the population increases that are even now starting in the city. city uh, grew over 50,000 people between 2010 and 2017. And uh, I got a, I'm thinking about 40% of them, uh, 40,000 of that 50,000, I believe, were in census tracts right along the Broad Street subway and the L. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of good things coming um, that you can see, and so you got you got to look, you got to look at everything: economic development, customer satisfaction, ridership numbers, um, you know, and what and the and the positive benefits for the environment. You know, there's a lot of different things that that kind of tell you uh, the SEPTA story. Now, uh, as an operations professor, I of course have to look at some efficiency metrics, and it lies in the nature of any public transportation, be it an airline or be it a cruise ship or a ferry or a bus, that they cannot always be full by definition, right? And mm-hmm. so I'm wondering, what is a typical utilization if I would now go all over to the, the, the take the bus down here from uh, West Philadelphia to Manayang? What is the utilization of a typical bus? How many seats are empty? And I, I understand there's standing space and seating space, but a typical airline seat tra- is basically booked for about 80% of the time. It lies, I guess, in the nature of bus travel that you cannot hit 80% capacity utilization. But is that a number that you track actively? Well, I'm, my people have it. It's not at my, my fingertips right now. Um, but, you know, I, I think the trends that we're seeing are that our ridership is staying very, very strong at, at our you know, our regular rush hour peaks, um, where we have started to see people making other decisions uh, in terms of bus ridership has been um, at, at nights and, um, and weekends. And that's kind of, as our frequency starts to drop off, that's when we're starting to see, um, you know, a little bit more uh, loss of ridership than, than we've had in, you know, quite a while. So there, there is a drop um, but it's it tends to be on our buses on the nights and weekends. Our rail modes are for the most part still holding up very well, and our regional rail is doing uh, exceptionally well. The regional rail lines since 1998 have grown 52 percent in ridership. So, so, so the bus story that the, the bus late at night that is an Uber Uber, Uber pool yeah, story, right? Yeah, you know, for a bunch of reasons, people mostly probably frequency. Uh, they they don't want to have to wait till the bus is going to be there, and so they're going with uh, the Uber and Lyft uh, at that time more than they have in the you know more than. Uh, in other words, we've seen that impact our business. So let's talk a little bit about the jobs at SEPTA. I mean, bus drivers, uh, that's a very demanding job, I would imagine. I mean, you have a responsibility like a pilot, basically, mm-hmm. and yet do you don't get paid like a pilot. Uh, what, is it, what is a typical career path to become a, a bus driver? What, what, what do the people who apply for these jobs, what's their background, and how long would I have to learn to, to, to be opera- operating a bus? The, I mean, the, the bus driver is, is probably has at least a high school uh, diploma. Uh, we do have bus drivers now coming out with, uh, you know, more education than that because they actually are fairly well-paying jobs. Um, and the, 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 it's actually not as long a time. Um, I think it's a, probably a month, month and a half uh, that it takes for us to get uh, somebody completely through our training program. Uh, so, you know, for the bus, um, you know that's that's pretty uh, attainable for for a lot of people, and it's a uh, it's a you know it's a it's a good good job. Um, it's it's for our rail mode specifically our railroad uh, where the training starts to be uh, much more, and the training typically uh, could take uh, you know three quarters of a year to become a, a regional rail uh, engineer. So it, it's it's a 
and that when you're when you're a regional rail engineer, you know you've got uh, a couple hundred people uh, on your vehicle. So um, you know there's there's a varying degrees of of responsibility. Uh, you know now uh, especially the signal systems are becoming a little more uh, helpful in preventing problems, and so. You know, it's always a back and forth with technology and, and, and us putting more people on vehicles. As you see, most of our vehicles, especially like our buses, and we're looking to do articulated trolleys now. Everything's All our vehicles are getting bigger. Uh, on the railroad, we're looking to do multi-level cars. So you kind of have us pushing for, for more riders, but also having a higher level of technology provide more safety. So if I stay with a bus driver as an example first, uh, so what does a typical workday look like? I mean, from the hours I'm, I'm paid, what, what hours uh, are there for breaks, for, uh, for other things? Uh, I, I say I come to work at 6 a.m., how much would I be driving before I go home in the afternoon? Well, I... You know, there's all there's all manner of runs. Um, I shadowed a bus driver uh, maybe two three years back, uh, and there were probably 13 different trips in an about 11 hour run. That's not necessarily a a typical run. That was one of the harder runs, uh, but you you really do see a mix. Um, you know, there are some that are set up more to run uh, just at the rush hours with, uh, you know, kind of a time off in between. Uh, and then there's, you know, occasionally there's routes like like the one that I experienced where it's uh, pretty uh, on the go all day long. So, uh, but they do, they work uh, scheduled for five, five days a week. Um, most of our uh, bus drivers and, and uh, uh, rail operators in the city uh, our commuter rail, we do have a number of them now that work six days a week. And do you track those drivers and the buses in the sense that some of the auto insurance companies have now devices implanted in the cars that would basically make sure that people stop at stop signs, they're speeding things? Is is that all monitored these days? Um, we have a we have cameras and we have uh, onboard, uh, you know, forward facing and over the operator uh, cameras. Uh, to see what's going on. Um, we do, uh, on our rail vehicles, they have a black box. We'll do uh, certain rail vehicles. We'll uh, pick at random and actually go through and do black box reviews. So we are using the greater technology uh, to be able to uh, look at how things are going uh, with our operators. And certainly now uh, with these with these cameras, we we can really uh, do a good job of investigating uh, situations, some that are, you know, near misses or speeding that's turned in. And so we have a lot lot of uh, technology to be able to both uh, avoid uh, safety problems and, uh, uh, you know, investigate issues when they happen or whether people are concerned that they might be getting close to an issue. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I'm chatting with Jeff Knoppel, who is the general manager of SEPTA, and we're talking about how SEPTA is changing in times of technology, how technology is used now to invest more in safety, monitoring drivers and collecting data. Um, now, Jeff, I have to make a personal confession. I owe you some money. I got onto a bus many years ago, uh, new to Philadelphia, and I only had a $20 bill, and the, the bus driver looked at me with a little bit of a, oh, God, this German dude, what is he doing here? And then he let me just ride for free. Um, now, paying on a bus these days is, is, is changing more and more, right? I mean, you moved away, you recently moved we away have, from the traditional yeah, token system. We're moving a card, you know, a smart card that you can use for payment. We're, we're kind of in the process of that, right? Well, we've been working on it pretty hard, but now... Uh, we really are uh, pushing down the use of the token, uh, and in fact, I think at the end of this, at the end of April, we SEPTA won't be selling the token anymore. Uh, they will still be available at some of our external uh, retail locations, but uh, uh, I think I was in Toronto last year, and and they were also the ones uh, working on getting rid of the token. I think we're mostly the last two in North America, but uh, you know it's it's uh, it's nice to be finally uh, getting to the to the kind of technology that we can uh, utilize. Uh, there's a lot of things that we'll be able to do with this smart card, and include uh, being able to better understand the travel habits of our commuters, 
uh, and riders. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of things that we can only start beginning to think about in terms of, um, you know, we can do pricing different during the day. Um, you know, we can move things around. We can, uh, you know, incentivize people. We can reward people for, for certain uh uh, you know patterns of usage so there's there's a, there's a lot of things that are coming uh and so i think that it's it's a it's a good thing for us is and, there any for our customers is there any public transportation system that you admire on how they rolled out this technology where you feel like you they, they got it I right i got to tell you that almost every one of them's had a tough time um and uh, i've seen that personally um going uh, to different uh, cities, and so we we traveled around and looked. Now ours has been a very very slow rollout. Um, I I don't know if you know if 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 it was, uh, you know, the greatest to go this slow. Um, but uh, you know I think that uh, the the fast ones really have been been problematic. So uh, we've been very deliberate, and and we have a lot of modes. I mean it's it's this is a you know, it's not usual for a city of this size to have everybody moving to that card. So whether you're on paratransit, on a bus, on a trolley, the Broad Street subway, commuter rail, one card will do it all. I mean, that's 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 uh, part of our challenge and and why we've been moving carefully. Uh, but there's 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 a lot of uh, opportunities uh, for us uh, going forward with this new smart card. So speaking about your fleet, you mentioned the many modes. Is that a strength or also a weakness of the system? In the in the following, I mean this in the following way that uh, just the maintenance complexity, the skill complexity of the workforce. It's just the more modes of transportation there are, the more complex of an operation this becomes, right? Yep. I. You know what? Here's the deal, though. We just do it. I, I can tell you that I didn't think about it until I became a general manager, and it really, really hit me because it just there's never there's never a break. Um, you know, we we it's like having a lot of children, and uh, one, on any given day, one of your children is giving you a tough time. But I, you know, I I think in terms of 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 uh, vulnerability uh, i don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing to have uh different modes different vehicles uh because then if you do have a problem with a certain fleet or something uh you know it doesn't it doesn't impact as much of your network uh as if you had uh you know fewer modes and fewer types of vehicles i will agree with you though that it is it is tough uh, to keep you know a bunch of different vehicles running um, it 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 does uh, make it a little harder and i 'm sure there 's a little bit of inefficiency in terms of of uh, you know stocking parts and and having you know different vehicles you know even for our infrastructure people some we have overrunning third rail we have underrunning third rail uh, but you know i think I think we just do it here in philadelphia it, it is what we we have. Um, we have, you know, standardized as much as we could, and so we don't. We just, we just do it. You know, we just do it. Is there, if you would compare the difference between a trolley and a bus, and I, I say this as somebody who's riding my bicycle along Lancaster Avenue a lot, and I always wonder with the trolley versus the bus, the trolley has trolley tracks. The tracks crack every winter with the the asphalt around them. Is the trolley so much cheaper to operate than just a bus line or is there another reason why we like the trolley so much um i i think it's it's just really become an institution here in philadelphia to have trolleys um you know the 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 trolley is a is a good situation where it comes into center city and we have the tunnel um you know i was when i was in toronto i remarked uh, to other people that i was with i was surprised that their trolleys were running right in the central business district on the street so i think one of the reasons that our trolleys have stayed you know useful and vibrant in our region here uh is the fact that they go into the tunnel when they get into center city um and they can you know move pretty pretty quickly through the tunnel so um, I think that's kept them, and and just the concept of you know they're very Philadelphia, so um, it's it's something that you know we've had, and and gosh the network was was much 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 bigger uh, in the past. I mean virtually, 
uh, unbelievable network in terms of, of uh, trolley coverage. But, you know, the bus, the, the ability to uh, be flexible and, and um, you know, change routes and move around and meet new markets, uh, it's kind of an interesting mix that you, you we do have the bus to develop uh, new markets, new routes, new new types of service, and at the same time keep the the trolley network. And and if we go to the articulated trolleys uh, in the near future, which we're hoping to, uh, there's a lot of uh, capacity on those those uh, articulated trolleys. So when you couple that with the uh, the trolley tunnel, which is a little over five miles long, uh, it it really becomes an efficient network. So think about the fleet of the future for SEPTA. In the second half of the show, I will talk to Florian Reuter, who is the CEO of Volocopter. And these guys are selling flying taxis, basically. Now, they're not really selling them right now, but I, I still have a hard time going from the Gira trolley line to a flying taxi. Um, but but you guys, in, you, you played around with a good number of energy-efficient and environmentally-friendly technologies on the buses, right? Uh, what, what is happening we, on that we front? We are going right now. We already have our first all-electric bus. Um, you know, we've we've we're tr we try to keep up with what's going on. Um, when I became general manager, we created an innovation department. Um, we're considered, you know, in terms of uh, power, uh, to be a very very progressive uh, transit agency. Uh, so always looking uh, to do things that are innovative uh, in terms of uh, electric usage and all. Um, but you know we'll we'll continue to watch. I mean, there's a there, and, and be a part of things. There's a lot going on with uh, autonomous vehicles, uh, electric vehicles. I mean, the the, the future is going to come. Uh, I think faster than than a lot of people believe. Um, in the air, I you know I'm not. I've been asked. That yeah, question. not me. Yeah, I've been asked that question before at another event, and you know I I, I there's it that. Right now, the one thing I would tell you, though, is you know the we this this uh, Uber and Lyft and all. We really have to be careful how much congestion we put on the city streets. That's that is one concern that I have, and it's not just Uber and Lyft. We also have a lot of deliveries now from uh, internet. Uh, I think I just saw an article on that today. Uh, a lot of internet uh, buying. Uh, there's a lot of different things that we have to watch out for. Uh, but you know all these. Uh, all these situations are something that we keep a very close eye on, uh, and you know you can you can if you don't pay attention to them, the you know that that can be bad. As, as I tell most of the people who work for me at SEPTA, um, I just know how much faster the world, the business world, is moving now than 30 years ago, and you really have to be paying attention. Uh, if you don't, things can. Uh, uh, get ahead of you very, very fast. So looking at all this kind of technology, all these kind of opportunities, and and in some cases challenges, that, that it, it's you, you got to do it. Could you imagine a situation where SEPTA vehicles are dispatched on demand? I guess there's a big difference between an Uber pool and a small bus is that the, the former is basically triggered by customer demand versus the traditional SEPTA model as we run when we run. Yep. We, we, could, could you see a version I, of basically I, a I, pool taxi? I think that they're working on that out in L.A. So already in our industry, um, that's starting up. So, I mean, I, I think we'll keep an eye on that particular endeavor. Um, you know, it, it, it really is going to... Um, it, it, it really is going to matter. A lot. There's a lot of factors in all of this. There really are uh, in terms of even, you know, whether things become autonomous and all that. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very uh, fluid situation. Uh, and so, you know, we'll, we'll watch. And like I said, I think Los Angeles has is, is, is started to move in that direction. And uh, we'll be watching to see how they do. If there's one thing that you can wish for for public transportation in the next 10 years, what would that be? Well, that's a really easy one. Um, I'm, a, I'm an engineer, um, a civil engineer by background. And uh, next month I celebrate 30 years at SEPTA. And I came from another area and was concerned by the 90s, you know, with the choice that I had made. And just because I was concerned, where, you know, where the city and the region were heading. 
But I'm telling you now, I'm just very excited about where the region's heading, to see all the tower cranes, the increases in population, uh, all that's going on. For, for SEPTA, what I want is us to not be the limiter for the region. Um, some of our rail modes are getting pushed to the brink for capacity, and I just uh, want people to pay attention to that issue and uh, help us because this is the type of thing that there's just so many positive things going on. Uh, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, uh, that when you look at the success of SEPTA, one of the things is the economic uh, development that we are spurring, and it's, it's just up and down our lines. I mean, I could show you. You'd be amazed. at. And there's a report coming out soon. Uh, that will that I'll be going around probably in the next month showing all over, and you can just see from housing values to to uh, construction starts to all kinds of things just going on. And what I want to make sure is that SEPTA is able to continue to fuel uh, this really fantastic situation that I, that our region is going through now. It's an exciting time. Exciting time for Philly. Go Philly! Thank you so much, uh, Jeff Knuppel. We need to take a short break now. When we come back, I will talk to Florian Reuter, the CEO of Volocopter, the company behind Dubai's flying cars. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow. I'm Christian Tevish, and this is Business Radio, powered by the Warden School on Sirius XM. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Warden School. Here again is Christian Tervish. Welcome back from the break. I'm Christian Tervish. This is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio on Sirius XM. I want to now welcome my second guest, uh, Florian Reuter, who is the CEO of Volocopter. Uh, Florian is not only a fellow German, but he also promises us what we have all been waiting for, that is flying cars. Welcome, Florian. Hello. Yeah. Welcome. Florian, tell us about Volocopter, for those of us not familiar with this. Yes, happy to do so. So, um, Volocopter was started in 2011 um, in what I believe is the most famous yoga ball ever, <laughs> when our founders, Stefan and Alex, showcased the first ever multi-copter propelled by distributed electric propulsion, um, so a battery-driven um, distributed electric multi-copter, uh, and they were conducting the first flight back then, making it into the uh, Guinness Book of World Records. And um, what started as a curiosity has turned into a very serious enterprise nowadays. So we are a company based in Germany now. Um, rapidly expanding our team and building a very unique and novel type of vertical takeoff and landing um, aircraft. Generally speaking, people would say we are uh, looking like a supersized drone or like an electric helicopter type of thing, um, capable of transporting passengers with very unique features, like it's extremely safe, so we can get to unprecedented safety levels with that kind of technology. It's very low noise. Uh, emission-free due to its um, battery, so it's absolutely feasible of um, operating these kind of vehicles at scale inside urban population centers, and um, therefore we are absolutely convinced that the Volocopter will have an impact on how we all experience urban mobility today. And the famous use case is a Dubai's flying taxi. I, I heard you made some headwinds there uh, over the last year in terms of getting uh, at least a prototype demoed. Yes, we did, indeed. So um, Dubai was the first city to approach us and embracing the concept of an autonomous air taxi. So we worked together with um, the authorities down there and um, had, you know, found some very challenging environmental conditions, um, primarily due to the heat um, over the summertime there. Um, so we uh, took our vehicle down there, um, rehearsed for uh, a number of weeks in order to test all the components and the entire system under the um, desert conditions. And uh, once we were satisfied with the results and gained approval from all relevant authorities, we moved into the city center to actually showcase, as you mentioned, the first ever autonomous flight, uh, demo flight of an uh, air taxi. And um, Dubai is very much committed to implementing these kind of services within the next five years. So this thing is real. I mean, for those of us uh, who have not been on, uh, have not had the pleasure of seeing one, I encourage you to go on the YouTube channel from Volocopter or just uh, Google up Volocopter. There's a cool video on, on their side. Uh, so 30 minutes of flying time, as I understand it. Two seats with like 18 propellers on top. The thing takes off vertically. So why is this just not a smart helicopter? I mean, what, what makes this kind of so special? So what, what makes it special um, is um, that... We are addressing all the shortcomings of traditional helicopters. So um, a helicopter already today is a huge, full, um, helpful and versatile um, aircraft. However, 
um, their safety record is um, mediocre at most. And um, they are extremely loud. They consume a lot of um, traditional fuel and um, therefore are just not very widely used. And uh, we address all of those issues with, you know, a new technological approach. And the Volocopter, in contrast to that, um, is extremely safe, can be emission-free, and is very quiet. And therefore, we believe it fulfills all the prerequisites to be finally applying these kind of um, aircraft at scale inside the cities. So for those of us who have been driving electric cars, we understand the concept for more insight of from battery business radio, power and uh, please visit shortage of business radio. Uh, so if I would take apart the volocopter, can you just give us uh, technical details or with, at the level that you're comfortable with yeah. uh, and give us a sense of how many kilowatt hours are stored in the batteries, how heavy these batteries are? Yeah. So, um, yeah, let me see how, much, you know, how many details I can actually share with you. But here's the basic concept. So... Um, we started out in the German ultralight regime. That's the reason why the Volocopter um, you know, has been designed under a very rigid weight dimensioning um, exercise. And therefore, um, the original outset was that we can have a total maximum takeoff mass of 450 kilogram, um, of which 160 kilogram are reserved for uh, two passengers. So the entire structure, including the battery, can only have 290 kilograms, which leaves very little room for, uh, you know, any, uh, let's say, um, you know, comfort features and so on. So we really uh, stripped the carbon structure down to the absolute minimum in order to put in a battery that was as big as possible and as heavy as the remaining weight, um, you know, budget would allow for. So um, basically, we have a, a battery weighing around 100 kilograms, um, let's say approximately 20 kilowatt hours, um, which ultimately um, gives us these 30-minute uh, flight time. Now, um, that was under the original ultralight regime. That regime has now been um, changed by the European Commission or by the European Parliament, um, giving out a new basic regulation, now allowing us 600 kilograms. And we're in the process of getting the entire vehicle uh, now commercially certified with EASA, um, stepping out of the ultralight regime and thereby you know, um, let's say, not being restricted to these uh, very politically driven um, weight barriers of the 600 kilo. So we're looking to build larger vehicles for fully commercial um, certification in the next step. So you right now have basically like a quarter of a Tesla battery, uh, I mean, directionally. Uh, yes, and the reason being uh, primarily weight restriction. Mm -hmm. And uh, how how does this scale the technology? So imagine now the European Union comes and relaxes the weight constraint by a factor of uh, allowing you to have an extra 100 kilograms of battery. How does the yeah. engineering of the vehicle scale with kind of now the bigger uh, the bigger batteries and potentially longer reach? But also then yeah. you, you 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 can't just pop in another battery, right? This is a complicated engineered device. Um, well, that's the interesting part of it, right? It's, a, it's an um, optimization problem with a number of factors. Um, so if you change one, you're changing pretty much everything. So we're constantly, for example, debating the optimal layout uh, with respect to um, the dimensions of range, influencing weight, influencing performance, influencing um, the efficiency we want to gain, influencing the footprint that the uh, physical dimensions of the vehicle have. So all of these are, if you change one, you're changing all other facets as well. Um, and that's a very interesting discussion, and it requires a lot of disciplines and a lot of uh, simulation power to actually come out with, with you know, feasible and uh, meaningful results, which we believe um, we have come up with for um, a range of products we're going to uh, bring out. Um, we see that the technology can be scaled, at least to the degree that we find feasible. Um, so we are absolutely looking at expanding the range um, by having, for example, bigger batteries or larger batteries um, for a two-seater, but we're also working, for example, on a four-seater. So that's um, definitely something where the technology can be scaled to quite easily. But again, it always requires a lot of uh, trade-offs to be taken into consideration, which is a quite complex challenge. So assuming we'll work out or you work out the technology, what's the yeah. use case then? So is it is your vision like an Uber-style ride that I sit there with an app and I just press, like, well, I want to go over to my friend's house? Or is it more like a city tour for tourists where you have like a predefined route and you're just moving people around? Uh, what, what is the kind of what, what use case do you envision? 
see, that's exactly what we uh, love to interact with our potential customers because there are so many ideas of what this technology can be, um, you know, be used for, where it can bring value, that we're actually containing a long list of uh, potential applications and um, we are constantly engaging with potential customers in assessing these and trying to prioritize them. So we approach it. Um, so first of all, we see numerous applications that this technology can be used for. Uh, we're approaching it from a, a timing perspective in saying we will start out as this and then I'll eventually it will lead to that. So we will start out as um, a um, new air vehicle that tries to fit into existing regulation as good as possible by, for example, putting in a joystick that can be operated by a pilot on board, requiring a traditional pilot license, very close to a helicopter license, in order to not to have to change too much to get going. Right? The vehicle is there. We have received first certification uh, by aviation authorities here in Germany. So we, we are very eager to get going and actually start you know, applying this technology in the market. For example, in cases like uh, first responder, um, potentially tourism flights and so on, um, initially taking up one of the two seats we have in our first vehicle by a pilot. That's fine. Of course, you want to get to higher um, economic output by you know, freeing up that second seat um, by having the vehicle operate more and more autonomously, um, which is absolutely feasible from a technology perspective, and therefore we are uh, diligently working towards it. And that's what makes uh, Dubai so interesting, because they were the first city to openly embrace the concept of an autonomous air taxi, um, which, of course, is something that we have on our roadmap, and we look to roll out to other cities across the geographies as well. So um, the second step will then be to introduce such air taxi services um, to cities, eventually, or First of all, uh, going point-to-point -point connections. So, for example, imagine a route um, connecting you from the airport to the city center. Um, uh, you know, premium example of that would be um, to have a connection from Newark Airport into downtown Manhattan. That's a 10-mile you know, stretch um, as the crow flies. There's no reason why that should take longer than 10 to 15 minutes. And uh, we can offer that as a volocopter. And um, the infrastructure requirements are pretty low compared to other means of transport, which should make it very you know, feasible for cities to actually start experimenting with these kinds of routes and implementing them um, step by step. Um, so therefore, we will start with point-to-point -point connections, and then eventually this will develop into a um, network of routes, potentially even including on-demand uh, takeoff and landing spots. So we call them on-demand volo ports that can be made up theoretically uh, dynamically over time for you know on any Walmart parking lot where you can reserve your volocopter landing spot for five minutes let's say no car parks there for that time being uh, you order the volocopter to where you are it comes picks you up you step in and it takes you directly as close as possible to your destination so the scenario that you just described is exactly what we work towards but that of course um, will come in steps and it will take some time until we get to the last let's say build-out phase now. But Florian, as a fellow German, I can't help but make a joke about the Americans. You mentioned the the use case of going from the airport to the city. Yeah. In civilized countries like Germany and Switzerland, we have a train for that, right? And that thing is bloody fast and has a very good uh, capacity and probably a really attractive dollars per ride. Yeah. Uh, isn't this more like a wow thing? And uh, don't get me wrong, I love wow things, but uh, I just don't see the incremental use value of going from my Munich airport to downtown Munich uh, as opposed to taking this, the S-Bahn, taking the train, the volocopter doesn't really buy me a lot of time. Is that fair? Uh, to some degree. So first of all, I love the wow thing as well, and I'm happy to start out as a wow thing. Oh, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. Um, wow is cool. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, this is a wow thing, definitely. But um, on the, uh, you know, in, a, in a larger context, I would argue that um, the volocopter isn't your vehicle or mode of transport of choice for any route. It is your mode of choice for particular routes and for particular times. So um, we are very explicitly looking at um, you know, different cities and explicit routes in order to see what is, what is a route where the volocopter actually brings value for the most part. If you have a completely you know, a free lane and a perfect bus service, you, you don't... You know, you don't really need a volocopter. You, you don't need to go up in the air. But if it's um, congested all the time and you could actually avoid that traffic by flying over it, you know, that uh, can um, be very attractive for some parts. And 
you know, we are located here in Karlsruhe, and I always keep joking. It wasn't made for Karlsruhe because, you know, this is a technology that's primarily geared for the megacities across the globe. But at the same time, even cities as small as Karlsruhe have congestion problems, and we have that all over the world. So there is, you know, a lot of routes that we find where people are actively embracing the introduction of such technology. And the second topic, aside from congestion, is topography. So uh, topology. So um, if you have waterways and so on, um, and you're faced with the question of, okay, I can, you know, drive around and go to a city, uh, go to a bridge or a tunnel, um, or I can just simply go straight as the crow flies. Um, you know, as soon as you identify such a route, that's where you will in, in, in implement a volocopter service. It's not something that you will always use. It's something that you will use for particular routes at particular times. And again, the Newark downtown Manhattan thing isn't soft today, uh, and I don't think it would be soft even if it was Germany implementing the public transport there. As somebody being born in Karlsruhe, Florian, let me assure our listeners here that Karlsruhe indeed is not New York. Uh, in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Florian Reuter, the CEO of Volocopter, who is uh, launching a flying car, something uh, safe, quiet, autonomous, electric, German in production right now. And it's really not a car, it's, 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 it's a little, vo it's a Volocopter, 18 propellers, vertical takeoff, everything in it. Um, so the, the ramp up, it, it's, it's an issue of time, right? So you, you convinced us, to, to some extent you convinced us, it's an, it's an issue of when and not if. Um, so the numbers I've seen on uh, your website about Dubai is, um, wow, it's 25% uh, of uh, Dubai traffic in 2030. Um, so help me out on that one. <laughs> so that you have to put into perspective. <laughs> Thank overall, you. <laughs> that's the overall ambition of the government of, of Dubai of um, you know, completing 25% of all transportation needs in an autonomous mode by that time. So that doesn't only apply to uh, autonomous flying taxis, it applies to autonomous driving cars, autonomous boats, and so on. So that's across all modes. And um, they intend to make air taxis a part of that autonomous transportation mix. So if I'm thinking about these RAM plans right now, I, I think a lesson learned in technology is it takes a while, right? So even great technologies take a while. I mean, if we think about the whole diffusion of the hybrid engine, the electric engine in, in, in cars, it just even really, really good technologies took a long time from initial research to the development to having a prototype and from prototype to real distribution, oftentimes still a matter of, of decades. Um, what is give give us a sense when when will I come to Munich or in other German cities and I, I see volocopters around with some likelihood that I'm now seeing Teslas on the road? I mean, is this yeah. ten years or is this forty years? <laughs> Great question. So, um, no contest that you know um, historically some uh, the diffusion of some of these technologies has taken a very long time. Um, I have a background. I, I um, you know used to work for Siemens. We were a huge organization, and in order for us to develop a new business, and that being meaningful for Siemens, it had to be in the hundreds of millions as soon as possible and have to have the potential of going into the billions. Now, I feel very comfortable in having joined a startup now, which you know is a much smaller organization, and we can live off a step-by-step -step approach. Of course, eventually we see huge potential in this uh, market, but we totally realize that this is going to take some time and we will take it step-by-step. So I'm absolutely far, as I, uh, uh, fine, as I said earlier, to start as a wow effect and introduce this in some, uh, you know, willing cities uh, very early on as a wow factor potentially for, you know, more elite customers. That's okay to start out like that until uh, full regulation and so on will embrace the concept of full autonomy. We will get the costs down. We will drive the volumes up and so on, ultimately to being a, a serious and um, how do you say, competitive uh, substitution for other modes of transport, at least partially for that. Um, so this is uh, something that will take time, but we are perfectly prepared to um, live out that time and get on the learning curve as fast as possible and you know, be ready for when that opportunity opens. Um, I don't expect this to be necessarily happening in Germany first. So we are already operating global. Um, as you might have seen, you know, we have done the demonstration flight in Dubai. We exhibited the volocopter during the CES, Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, earlier this year. So we are uh, you know, going wherever the interest is and wherever regulatory bodies and city officials are 
starting to embrace that concept. And again, there's many, many applications we can serve before even going into the city and flying over populated areas and implementing full taxi services. So um, again, we are willing to take this stepwise, but are very confident that we will see it sooner than many people expect because we were surprised ourselves to see cities across the world already being willing to test it out. So we actually currently plan three different test demonstrations uh, during the course of 2019 uh, in order to demonstrate not just the vehicle, but the entire ecosystem that's required to provide such a service, so including the air traffic management integration we need, including the uh, landing the uh, infrastructure, the charging infrastructure, and so on. So you will already see test demonstrations next year, and we expect to see first implementations of commercial routes as early as 2020-2021, potentially with limited let's say volume yet, but uh, you will already be able to travel somewhere to actually experience that kind of uh, commercial service. Is autonomous flying harder or easier than autonomous driving? So, good question. From a technology perspective, I would say it's pretty similar. It has a lot of similarities. Um, not 100%, but to a large degree. Um, however, the environment in which you're operating is much easier than on the ground. Um, for the most part, um, you have much more room to maneuver and to avoid other, let's say, obstacles. Um, you also have, uh, to some degree, some obstacles that may not be cooperative in your system. So central coordination, central deconflicting may not work if you're flying into a bunch of birds. Um, but nevertheless, overall, uh, you have a much more um, educated and technology better equipped uh, environment than you have on the ground. So I believe Bottom line for me, it, it's easier to fly autonomous than to drive autonomous. Has that uh, optimism taken a hit with uh, the last week's accident at Uber? This is a development that we follow very closely because, of course, public perception will have an influence on policymakers and so on. And, um, you know, I, I just think we as an industry have to be very diligent about the steps that we take. We can go too fast. Um, without wanting to judge on you know any any particular entity here, but uh, we have to be very well aware that there is a certain degree of skepticism, and we have to uh, confront that as an industry and work towards it. Ultimately, I think if we can keep the discussion rational, uh, people will see that the data you know ultimately will prove that the computer is the better driver. Um, that's something that we see and that we absolutely believe in. So uh, we work very hard to approach it from a more evidence-based uh, perspective and say to cities, look, we, can, we are happy to start out in an environment where we're not flying over people initially, give you the operating data that you require in order to feel confident around it, and once you feel confident, we can you know, decrease the operational restrictions and move to more and more relevant areas, which is an approach we are fine with and we accept. And, uh, of course, these kind of incidents uh, definitely shape the public perception and also shape the way and the level of, um, let's say, scrutiny that we get from uh, policymakers around the globe. Florian, you mentioned that you worked for Siemens before, and I think you got a capital infusion from Daimler recently. Uh, yep. Could this type of innovation happen within a BMW or a Daimler, or what is it of uh, have being that small, somewhat independent startup that allows you to do this wow type of technology? You know, from a theoretical perspective, you would say, of course, Daimler has all the resources to build something like that faster and better than Volocopter, and Airbus must be even better positioned to do that. Um, at the same time, you have a huge legacy business requiring constant innovation, requiring answering customer requests and so on, requiring to you know, make returns very early on, and you have this constant scrutiny of uh, resource allocation processes. And from uh, what I've learned at Siemens, it's extremely hard to overcome this, what is called the innovator's dilemma. I'm pretty sure at Wharton you are familiar. Yeah, we heard of that thing. But it wasn't developed at Wharton, I have to tell you, unfortunately. Okay. So, absolutely, this is something that I've, you know, experienced firsthand, having worked in a, in a, in a huge organization. So, I feel very confident that uh, within a startup, within a young, small enterprise initially, um, you are more flexible to react to, um, you know, unforeseen uh, incidents. You are more flexible to pivot. You um, are talking to more risk-affine investors. I think that's the crucial point. And um, you have more time to develop your business. You know, within Siemens, we always said, if you're not making at least 500 million turnover a year, you're a rounding error in the annual report. So you're not of relevance at all until you reach that point. 
and you will not get a lot of patients to reach that point. And this is completely different here at Volocopter. You know, we'll have a big party once we reach 100 million turnover. So it's a different perspective, and that overrules the level of resources or competence you might initially have at the outset. And I'm absolutely convinced of that, and that is why I'm very confident that this type of innovation will be brought to the larger audience, you know, coming from startups rather than the, the large incumbents. I think that's a really interesting in, uh, insight that you share there, Florian, that uh, for a regular tech company, even if it's doing well, hitting 20, 30, 40% growth rates over the years is already a lot. And so growing from zero to 500 million is just based on any evidence in the past. If you take out Google and Facebook, it's like really, really, really rare, right? And so this idea of uh, having a culture where 50 million is celebrated as a milestone and a big success, I think gives a small startup a, a, a big edge. So what's next for you? So what's what's the next milestone? So there's, there's a Dubai kind of project you mentioned, uh, kind of other initiatives. If you yeah. think about like w the next big milestone for you, what does it look like? So we are constantly improving our vehicle. Um, you know, we've, we've already flown. We've received first um, certification from German aviation authorities. So, um, you know, we can test out and experiment much more than we could in the past, which is a tremendous advantage now, thereby improving our... Uh, you know, simulations, going back into empirical studies and so on. So that's a virtuous cycle of, you know, uh, learning, as we call it. Um, so we are constantly improving our product. We're now at the second generation, preparing for the third generation of the product, which shall be commercially licensed by EASA. And that process has already been initiated, so the European um, um, Aviation Safety Agency, which ultimately will give us a ticket to start being active commercially on a global scale. Right? We'll have to, of course, uh, then talk to FAA, but they are closely aligned with EASA. So this is something that is up uh, very high uh, on our roadmap. And, of course, we're now um, having a first series of vehicles that we can start demonstrating and testing under different environments. So we've been to Dubai, and we'll certainly um, continue to experiment uh, in that environment, and we want to um, build out further test cases in other parts of the world. So we are currently um, conducting this grand analysis of, you know, where should we test out what in order to learn the most for global, to prepare for global rollout. Um, so expect to see... Um, us selecting different use cases over the coming months and then starting you know, very uh, diligent negotiations with the partners on the ground in order to say, uh, you know, what can we do uh, in order to implement a full ecosystem in your context and to showcase something that we haven't already learned in Dubai or somewhere else. So we learn as much as possible in as little time as possible in order to prepare for commercial rollout a year or two later. Says Florian Reuter, the CEO of Volocopter. Vielen Dank, Florian. Greetings to the, the home base there. We've reached the end of the show today and was quite a show with uh, SEPTA buses in Philadelphia and flying cars in Dubai. If you want to have access to some of our older episodes, check out our website, workoftomorrow.com. I'm Christian Terwisch, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening.